All righty, everyone. Welcome back. This is Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, bringing you a brand new episode of Monday Madness on August 21st, 2023. Today is the first day of school for many people. Elementary students, undergraduates, and doctoral students alike went to bed last night knowing that the summer was finished. The time for pools and sunshine is gone as they embrace papers and calculations. I, for one, am happy to be out of school. And I've got to be honest, I'm not sure if I would go back for more. Not because I hate higher education, but because those student loans are back to generating interest here in the next couple weeks. Maybe one day I'd go, maybe not. But good luck to those of you out there headed back to class. But this isn't a podcast about pep talks for the educated. I'm sure you came here for news and statistics surrounding the world of energy, so let's get to it. The first statistic to go over is energy commodity prices. WTI started last week just above $82, but reached a low of $79 by Wednesday. It was able to find some strength and rose to $81.50 by Friday, where it lingered through the weekend. This morning, we're seeing that same pattern of volatility we've seen in most recent Mondays. The price rises a bit, only to be pulled straight down by what many suspect is massive coordinated short-selling. Whether or not the speculation is accurate, the price doesn't seem to care why there is downward pressure. In previous weeks, it just shoots back up, sometimes rising even higher than it was before the drop. Today, the price is almost $81 flat, after peaking at more than $82. I imagine just a few hours from now, the price should come back up to repeat previous patterns, but patience will be key. Brent exhibits the same price action, yet the spread still remains surprisingly thin at 350. That will only help to improve those already good-looking inventory reports as more countries will look at U.S. oil as a more attractive import from an economic perspective. The spread is held there for a few weeks, but I don't really anticipate it going down much more. Natural gas had a lovely little bump in price this time last week as it topped out at 290. From there, it went down to a low of about two and a half bucks. We've seen marginal gains today, but that price is only up to 260, so don't get too excited about it. Not a ton more to say in this arena, as the price for both oil and gas has been stuck in this multi-month tight banding that will need some significant pressure to break. Next is the rig count. We've seen consistent five or six hits to the U.S. rig population, but this is the first time in a few months that we've seen a double-digit decrease. That's right, 12 rig decrease, bringing the total count to 642, which is 120 fewer rigs than we had this time last year. Basin by basin, it was the can of Woodford that took the brunt of the blow with three fewer rigs. The Utica and Willison lost two, and the Haynesville and Marcellus lost one each. Surprisingly, the granite wash basin doubled its total by adding one to its most recent report. Otherwise, nothing else. State by state, Pennsylvania was able to add two rigs, and it was the only state to have some positive change. New Mexico and Wyoming each lost one. North Dakota, Ohio, and Oklahoma each lost two. But Louisiana and West Virginia lost three each. The Gulf of Mexico even dropped one. Rigs making holes of all kinds and targeting both oil and gas were dropped across the board with no clear trend. Well, I should say the only clear trend is an absolute demand destruction to drilling new wells, and that is before we even consider that all pandemic-era ducks are absolutely gone at this point. Things are getting rough, and I would not be surprised if we were looking at severe supply issues this decade or even as soon as next year. Our last statistic to cover is the inventory report. 
The EIA predicted a 2.3 million barrel drawdown, but ended up reporting one much closer to 6 for the second largest drawdown since June. The API predicted a slightly smaller drawdown at 2 million barrels, but reported a drawdown that was about 200,000 barrels larger at 6.2 million. This almost perfectly balances out last week's build, meaning August is still down 17 million barrels. The downward trend from the start of the year continues, though we still just sit shy of center of that five-year historical range. But don't be fooled. Those last five years have been anything but normal. Gasoline inventories basically hovered right where they were while prices continued on their uphill climb. It does look like gasoline prices are slowing the rapid change as it still gets expensive, but only a little more than five cents more expensive than it averaged last week. The most expensive gasoline is in, you guessed it, California, as it averages 5.182 per gallon irregular. The cheapest is in Mississippi. It remains at an average of 3.334 per gallon. Those of you in Colorado may have noticed that we just crossed over that $4 threshold ourselves as gasoline gets a bit more expensive. Diesel is 11 cents more expensive than it was last week and appears to be increasing in price much faster than other fuels. The story remains the same for both distillates and propane as the former grazes the bottom of the historical five-year range and the latter flies over. It looks as if the increase to the propane supply is now leveling out, so it is possible that we return to historically normal territory in September. At the end of the day, rigs are falling and the price feels manipulated, and inventories aren't any healthier than they have been in the past. Our news story, well the first one for today, comes from our neighbors in the north. Alberta is the premier province when it comes to oil production, and they are pushing back on some renewable projects. A new moratorium prevents the construction of wind and solar projects of one or more megawatts in capacity for the next seven months. They hope, and by they I mean the government and whoever receives the contract, to do a study and buy time to see how this impacts their power grid and their pristine landscapes. Those are the two things. The CEO of the Canadian Renewable Energy Association is concerned that the moratorium will put $15 billion worth of projects at risk. Surprisingly, most of the projects are located within Alberta, 75% to be exact. I don't think this is because of any certain conspiracy theories or the region's relationship to oil and gas, but more so because Alberta is a big agricultural province with lots of open space. It would be a lot like constructing wind projects in Iowa and Nebraska across I-80 over somewhere like Denver or a comparative Toronto or city like Calgary. Either way, the Wall Street Journal reported that this is an increasing trend of pushback that is developing in areas with the largest rollout, which is a big roundabout way of saying not-in-my-backyard sentiments are starting to take effect. If this is truly a way to take a closer look at the impacts of electrical reliability and tourism, I think it's great. I do wish it was a bit more of a democratic process rather than the feds just halting it. I only say that to be intellectually consistent because I would be upset if it was the other way around. Kind of like when the Biden administration took down that pipeline the first day of their presidency, revoked its permit to operate. Electrical grids are a finicky beast at the end of the day. They weren't really built to be so bi-directional with large capacities of power feeding both ways and accepting electricity from where they intended to distribute. If you get too many unreliable parts in electricity generation, it tends to overload components as the demand remains relatively predictable. People like to use lights and heat at the end of the day, but sometimes you don't get the wind and sun that you would like. This leads to outages and pissed off people. 
I'm eager to see what Alberta discovers, though I imagine bias will probably play into what they decide. For our second story, we simply have to take a look at China and how they are setting up to emerge as a global LNG trading power. Trading desks are either emerging or expanding all over the world. If successful, they have the capacity to compete with people you may have heard of before. People like Shell, BP, Total, and Equinor. Yeah, they're trading LNG or gearing to at that level. If it is not gas coming directly from China, they will still act as the sort of middleman and source deals from other countries. Believe it or not, they're actually securing tons of gas resources from Qatar and the United States. These are mostly short-term deals, so it really seems like they are doing their best to not overextend themselves in terms of infrastructure, but don't confuse short-term with small because they're importing 40 million more tons annually since last year, or about a 50% increase. Even if they don't own the infrastructure to deliver the gas, they do own 10% of the Russian Novatech Arctic LNG-2 project, which should come online before the end of this year. According to Reuters, past that, a dozen Chinese energy trading companies are hiring even more traders in places like London and Singapore. So they have a lot of fishing lines out and are likely feeling around for what holds the largest potential for them in the realm of LNG. But ladies and gentlemen, that is all I have for today's episode. Thanks again for tuning in because we absolutely love to learn what we can about the world of energy, whatever it is, and are happy that you are here to join us. If you want more content, you can go to our website, www.rarepetro.com, where we post plenty of periodicals, podcasts, and news from some of our favorite sources. We've got a wide backlog of content, so go ahead and search for anything you like, and I'm sure you'll probably find something. Otherwise, keep becoming the best energy professional you can be, and we will see you back here next week. This has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 